Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Bianca Casasol. Some exploratory, clumsy groping. Some, like, real inelegant oral sex. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I have a favor to ask of all our Risk fans out there. It's very important to us. You know, we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons why advertisers love Risk is they know the show has such passionate listeners. Right now, we have a survey that I'd love for you to take to help us learn more about our audience. Just go to podsurvey.com slash risk. The survey will only take five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself, what you like to buy, but it's completely and totally anonymous. Your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, to your interests, and to the show. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card, even if you've taken a podcast listener survey before. I'd like to ask that you take ours and help support the show. Don't forget you have a chance to win that $100 gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com slash risk. No exclamation point. Podsurvey.com slash risk. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so we can keep the show free. Also, it's spring, which means you're horny. And when I say you, I mean me. But 
Maybe you also. In any case, get on over to adamandeve.com because you're sure to be horny when you see the 10 free gifts they got for you there. You'll get a sexy surprise for her, a specially selected toy for him, and third, a little something you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult DVDs and free shipping on the whole order. Just go to adamandeve.com, select any one item, could be a toy, lingerie, whatever. Just enter the offer code RIP at the checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts adamandeve.com select one item get 10 free gifts the offer code is risk at adamandeve.com now here's the show kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison and this is the houdinis behind me now we are calling today's episode crushed i know it sounds heavy and yes there is some heaviness here there's going to be laughter and gasps <laughs> and um and maybe a little bit of in any case, there's definitely a romantic crush and a couple of crushing surprises. Now, we did something surprising. JC and I, the producer of the show and I, we took a vacation last week <laughs> for the first time in seven years. We gave you a Best of Risk music episode while we went to Tokyo, Japan. I cannot tell you how many lovely, fascinating, fun, and sexy (laughs) people we met over there. Hey, if you are over there in Japan, tweet at us or or reach out to us on Facebook. In both places, it's at risk show because we would love to bring the show there someday. And I was so thrilled to find a storytelling show in English right there in Tokyo. It's called Apocrypha. It's at a bar called Gari Gari. That's G-A-R-I-G-A-R-I in Setagaya. The bar is adorable. The people are fascinating. It's hosted by a wonderful lady named Rachel Roberts. And if you are anywhere near Tokyo, you should definitely check out their Facebook page to find out when Apocrypha is happening next. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a truly remarkable story that was shared at our Cleveland show this past winter by a young lady named Stephanie Streeter. But before that, we're going to hear a more recent story that was shared at our Carborough, North Carolina show by the wonderful Bianca Casasol. Here she is now with a story we call Girlfriend.
Penny when I was 12 years old. It was my first day at Daniel's Middle School, and my mom had called the office to say she was running a little late, so I should just hang out. Two hours after the bell rang, I was still sitting on the Daniel's lawn and just feeling that kind of self-consciousness that you can only feel when you don't really have a way to leave, but you don't really have any reason to be there. If you've ever been like a third wheel or the first to arrive at a party, that's the feeling. <laughs> I'd gotten really focused on like just braiding some pieces of grass together when uh, a shadow fell. And I looked up and I see this girl. She's medium height, brown hair. She has the rosiest cheeks I've ever seen. And this mouth that's so small and kiss-shaped, it looks cartoonish, like a little beak. And she's carrying this tattered drawing pad covered with, like, band stickers. And so she pops down next to me, and she pushes her knee against mine. So I push my knee back. And then she kicks my foot. So I kick her foot. This escalates pretty quickly. (laughs) The next day, I've got bald spots, red welts, scratches, bite marks... And despite all of this aggression, this somehow felt really friendly. Like, it was a light-hearted game of chicken. Like, if I do this, what are you going to do? Who's going to tap out first? My mom pulls up. I've got a fistful of Penny's hair. She's got my forearm in her mouth. The bite marks take, like, hours to fade away. And my mom is understandably horrified. This is her daughter's first day of school. Clearly, violence has been bestowed upon her. And it was the first time me and Penny actually made any verbal acknowledgement of each other. And we just started laughing so hard. Harder than I've ever laughed in my entire life. And it was this very specific sort of laughter that told my mom, oh, you're not included. This is not for you. It was obvious. Uh, Penny and I were best friends. I moved to North Carolina in a pretty dramatic way. A story that Penny would have taken days to tell you and had mustachioed villains and twists and turns. She would have made you beg her to reveal what happened after the cliffhanger. Sometimes she'd wait days, but it would always be worth it. For me, I just wanted to say my story as quickly as possible and hope it didn't change the way that she looked at me. I moved to North Carolina because my parents' relationship had devolved into a pretty abusive one, the kind where you've got to throw in the towel and put 800 miles between you. We were living in a women's shelter, our fourth, in fact, uh, when I met her. They got better later. They kept the good stuff, stopped hitting people, but like my dad still liked fart jokes. My mom still liked casseroles, but <laughs> at the time, things were really turbulent, The first time she convinced me to skip a class, I was too scared to leave the campus. So we just sat in the girls' bathroom for an hour and played MASH. Uh, She said it was super boring and teased me about how uncool it was. But for me, it was exhilarating. I'd never done anything bad before and certainly never done anything bad and gotten away with it. If you come from a violent household, getting away with it is, is not a thing. That's not a thing that exists. Sometimes even if you've done nothing wrong, you'll find yourself sitting at a dining room table, watching grape juice drip down the wall, covering little speckles of blood, and wonder why you had the audacity to ask for more juice. So to me, she was a tornado, and I was thrilled to go along for the ride. I was addicted to this, and I was addicted to her. By the end of middle school, 
We had been uh, real angsty, real, really leaned into that angstiness. I had like a, a purple book bag with a leather bottom that I wrote like a lot of Nirvana lyrics on. That gives you like a picture of who we were. Uh, by high school, her parents had taken her out of school to be homeschooled. They found out that she was seeing this older guy, this guy named Jacob, who I hated. I guess a neighbor had told them that his car had been parked outside the entire time they'd been away for the weekend. Her parents were interesting to me because they were really strict and really religious, but largely absent. I'd known Penny over a year before I ever met one of them. When I met them, uh, we were having dinner together, and her father is the calmest man I have ever met in my entire life, which made it even more alarming when after dinner, he grabbed my arms so hard that there were bruises the next day and said, you're not fooling anyone. Penny's a good girl, so you better watch yourself. When I told Penny about it, she just laughed it off and said, like, he's such a kook, he's crazy, what a silly beans. <laughs> she was my compass, so if she told me that everything was okay, then I knew that it must be. Her mom was always at some sort of church function, and the kind of church they went to was pretty intense for my, like, growing up Catholic self. They went to a Pentecostal church, the kind of faith healers, Sometimes we were required to go along, which meant that we would stay in the back and eat off-brand Oreos and just make fun of the churchgoers. Uh, Penny used to say, all sense of community leaves the room when a faith healer's there, which I didn't believe until the first time I saw it and saw parishioners pushing each other out of the way to get to the front of the line. And she used to say, do they think they're going to run out of Jesus? seems pretty antithetical to their whole thing. (laughs) Now that she was homeschooled, I did have to see her parents more frequently. They would pick me up and then drop me off and then leave. Usually her dad would say something like, oh, your pink hair makes you look like a fucking mutant, which I was, like, so pumped about. It's like, yeah, that's me. She acted like she wasn't upset about the fact that she couldn't go to school or see this boy, but I knew that she was bummed out about it. So I went over every single weekend, and we watched stupid movies and made indoor s'mores and made those little origami fortune tellers until eventually she started to smile again. And that just became my routine. Every weekend, that's what I would do. And one day, a little bit into that, I was 15, and I was convinced, like, by this point, I should surely know a lot more about sex. I knew she had had it, I hadn't. Fifteen years old, surely I should have had several lovers under my belt. (laughs) I presumed. So I had a lot of questions about it. Like, well, what do you do? How does it start? Or is it, I don't, the logistics of it and the the manners. I just didn't understand any of it. And while uh, we were talking about it, more like a little drunk on some wine coolers that we'd stolen from her mom's collection... I couldn't stop staring at, like, her little beak mouth, which I guess she noticed because she kissed me ostensibly so I would know what to do when a boy did it. But then she kept kissing me. And then, like, things tended to go with us. It escalated pretty quickly and with not a lot of fanfare, some exploratory clumsy groping, some, like, real inelegant oral sex. It was pretty ham-fisted, but it was heartfelt. (laughs) 
And aside from a few logistical and technical glitches, seemed to go okay and felt very natural. And immediately afterward, I started freaking out because I'm just a nervous person. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean about you? What does this mean about me? What is it? Whoa, what does this mean about the whole world? And she took her thumb and she smoothed out the wrinkle on my forehead and she said, oh, it's so simple. We should have to move to New York City. We're going to start a band. <laughs> We're going to ride motorcycles. We're going to get married. We're going to be the baddest bitches the world has ever seen. She did this really amazing spot-on impression of her father doing a tirade against those lesbians that culminated in her setting her pubic hair on fire and calling it the burning bush. So we lit some incense to hide the smell of burning hair danced naked to Nirvana and had a grand old time. We would go on these defiant dates, would go to these old southern relics like the Hayes Barton Cafe or uh, Ballantine's Confederate Cafeteria and kiss sloppily in the booths until we were asked to leave because we were making other patrons uncomfortable and I would of course apologize and she would go, you loved it. Eventually, her parents found out. Uh, We weren't particularly sly about it, so I guess it was bound to happen. We weren't allowed to see each other unsupervised, and for reasons that are still unclear to me, they never told my parents. I guess it just satisfied all of their expectations about the trash, godless heathens that we were. So didn't expect my family to do anything about it. So one of the last times I really feel like I saw her, we went to a biscuit store off of Wake Forest Road called Biscuitville. Because before cell phones and email, clandestine dates were pretty hard to arrange. And it was very dramatic. We like cried into biscuits and gravy and like kissed each other's tears away and said it was all going to be fantastic. We were going to figure it out. And we didn't, of course. We just went months without talking. I ate a lot of ice cream. I wrote some genuinely terrible poetry was pretty bad Uh, a couple of months later she called me and she said I've accepted Jesus now so it's safe for us to be together and I thought (laughs) I'm picking up what you're putting down All right, all right." so I go over to her house her parents are there they explain that because they know that she's accepted Christ She's now living an honest life, so there won't be any uh, funny business. So we're welcome to sleep in the same room because they trust her. She shows me that she's replaced all of her Jinka wide leg jeans and band t-shirts with modest floral dresses and explains, if you act like a lady, men will treat you like a lady. It's as simple as that. She offered to dye my hair because at the time I had turquoise streaks which she said were against God and unladylike beside. After all of this, we have dinner, we go to her room, and we still think this is maybe a trap. This is a trick to see what we do. So we go to the kitchen to get snacks, making a lot of noise, listening out for snores. We play some Nirvana, which is now forbidden in her home, and nobody says anything. So it feels like, oh, we must be safe. This is good. She kisses me, and we sleep together. And then she turns around and says, Jesus was watching us. And so I start to rub her back, and I think, like, okay, 
I'll play this game. You're going to make fun of me forever about this, for believing that you changed so much. And I kept on waiting for her shoulders to start shaking, or for her eyes to find mine and her lips to quirk at the corner, and us to joke about how absurd this joke was that we were playing. And it never happened. I just kept rubbing her back and feeling like, you're crying and it's my fault. And I, th- I thought we were on the same page. We tried to hang out a couple times after that, but it was never quite the same. One time she invited me to go to a coffee shop she thought I would really like. And when I got to the address, it was a place called Jehovah Java. <laughs> In North Raleigh, I came in to find her sitting with her whole family and explaining that she thought I'd really like the youth church hellfighters that they've got. So I stayed for just long enough to see this girl that I thought was a force of nature nodding solemnly along with a rant that decried homosexuality, feminism, and secular rock music within ten minutes. I still wanted to be her friend. She had been so important to me that when she contacted me about going to her baptism, of course I said yes. It was held at the YMCA. Casual Sunday dress requested. So I showed up early in business casual wear just to see the pastor blessing the lanes while people were still swimming laps in them. Which felt so crazy to me because it's not like you unblessed them. So how many times have I played sharks and minnows in holy water? The guy that was set to be baptized right before her was this man named Roger, who I had met at Hellfighters, where he was volunteering. He was this middle-aged guy, and when I'd met him at the youth church, he explained to me that flirting with or dating another child of God is akin to incest. So, look out. When I asked him about his wedding band and if he had skirted the whole incest thing by marrying a heathen or if he just made his peace with it, he had just pressed some scripture magnets and hard candies into my hand. So they lead Roger into this like waist-deep water, and they say, have you accepted Jesus Christ into your life? Now, if any of you have ever been to a baptism, there's a beat, there's a moment where you're supposed to feel the gravitas of this, of this rebirth, and everyone's silent, and then this little bubble comes from below the water, followed by two much larger bubbles. And when it hits the air, it's it's immediately obvious what's happened. Like, Roger has farted, and not just like a little toot, like several, like, nostril-burning, just the stinkiest farts you have ever smelled in your life, stronger than the chlorine, just so intense. And I look over to catch her eye, and she's got her hands raised, her eyes lifted to the sky in apparent rapture, and it's so absurd, and I, I can't take it. So I let out this little gug, like little, little tiny giggle, and it becomes like a bigger laugh, which becomes a wheezing guffaw. And then I, I run out of the YMCA, my like shoes are squeaking on the tile, and I'm in the parking lot just doubled over, and she comes out, and I was like, that's right, he farted. No, no, he farted, it's funny. I, why are you mad at me? I, I'm the one farting in the holy water. Well, they dumped him in the far water when he said yes. Well, why are you mad at me? I, 
What did you think that was the devil coming out of him? I was that way. It smelled like sulfur. Come on. Come on. And she just turned away and walked inside. That was the last time I really talked to her. I don't know if she ever knows what she was to me. She wasn't just my first wine cooler, first cigarette, uh, first kiss, first girlfriend, first best friend. She taught me what it was like to be brave and what it was like to live in this world that I didn't even know existed before. She taught me all that. She taught me how to kiss girls and what not to do at a Pentecostal baptism. (laughs) About a year ago, she Facebook friend requested me, which of course I said yes to. And every so often I'll hover over that send message link and I'll start to think like, maybe I can reference something about your life before you were a married mother of two who works at Rite Aid and lists couponing as your interests. Maybe if I send you a message like, hey, come to New York, we'll, we'll start a band. We'll ride motorcycles. We'll be the baddest bitches the world has ever seen. Maybe you should consider it. But instead, I close that window and I like whichever Facebook status seems the most innocuous. And when Facebook excitedly tells me that she's changed her profile picture, I write and rewrite a million different things before finally settling on pretty. Thank you. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is a friend of mine. Once I tried to run, I tried to run and hide. But Jesus came and found me and he touched me down inside. He is like a mountie, he always gets his man. And he'll zap you any way he can. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. So I uh, moved to Cleveland five years ago, right after graduating art school, and my cousin owns a glass studio here. He gave me a job right out of college, and I am from a really rural town in Tennessee, so moving to this city was a huge deal for me, and I was so excited. I got a job to supplement my income from the studio at a comedy club downtown where I worked as a cocktail waitress. I had been living in the city for about six months, and it's February, one night after a particularly long and exhausting shift at the club, my two friends, Ryan, Tara, and I, decide to grab a quick drink around the corner at a bar. The snow is coming down pretty heavily, and we walk in the bar just in time for last call, so we have our one drink, and I tell my friends that I'll give them a ride home. We get in my car and I pull onto Superior Avenue right behind this large black SUV and I've only been driving for about a minute when I see from above the car, from the hood of the car, there come flying these shapes and I remember thinking that they just looked like sacks of laundry. I only just have time to think, what the hell is that? When I see lying in front of my car, there is a woman. 
my friend Ryan starts to scream over and over again, those are people, those are people, and I hit the brakes, but it's too late, and I feel my car hit and go over. So Ryan is still screaming, and Tara is in the back seat, and I can hear her breathing really heavily, and I feel like I'm paralyzed, but I pull my car over, and I get out my cell phone to call 911, and I look up just in time to see that black SUV go straight through a red light and speed over the bridge. So I'm on phone with 911, and I don't remember anything clearly after this point. I know that I stay on the phone with the operator, and that I walk back about the 10 yards toward that accident occurred, and my friend Ryan is standing in the snow in just his T-shirt, and I put my arms around him because he's shivering. I was told later it was because he had taken off his jacket and his sweater, and he'd placed it over one of the girls who was lying in the road. The police arrive, and I don't know what I say to them, but I'm soon in the back of a squad car, and Ryan and Tara are placed in there with me for a couple minutes, and Tara's crying hysterically, and she places her hand softly on my arm, and she tells me, Stephanie, I heard the paramedics talking, and there is a girl trapped under your car. So my only reaction is just denial. I just say out loud over and over again, it's not my car. It's somebody else's car. There's no way that that's my car. Ryan and Tara are taken away, and I am taken to the Justice Center where I'm booked. And as I'm emptying out my pockets onto the counter, no one is telling me what's going on. No one is giving me a straight answer. And I ask out loud to whoever will listen, how long am I going to be here? And a female officer who's working on the computer says with this flat voice, just equal parts, disdain and annoyance, a long time. So I am then taken to a room where two female officers administer a search, and they are equally disdainful, and their commands are sharp and brief. So I'm put into a cage where there's a phone, and I'm told that I can make phone calls. I thankfully remember my cousin's number, the one who hired me at the studio. But he doesn't pick up right away because it's very late at night. And from behind me, I can hear these harsh male voices hurling abuse at me. And they're catcalling and they're threatening to rape me. And they're just saying disgusting things, which are the first things my cousin hears when he picks up the phone. I am hysterical and I'm crying, but he calms me down just enough to figure out what's happened. And he promises me that he's on it and he's going to get me out by morning. So I'm then led to a group holding cell where an officer opens the door and flips on a light so I'm able to see that the floor is littered with sleeping women covered in these institutional scratchy blankets. The back corner is open, so I begin to tiptoe back there, but before I make it, the officer closes the door, shuts the light, and I stumble into a couple of the sleeping girls who just kind of curse and grunt at me. And I sit down in the darkness in that corner and the room is freezing and I am more afraid in the dark surrounded by strangers than I have ever been in my entire life. And all I can see over and over again is that accident and I see that black SUV drive straight through the red light never slowing down after hitting three people in the middle of the road. So eventually the lights come on, which I guess means that it's morning, Uh, officer comes to the cell and tells me that uh, there's a lawyer here to speak with me. So I'm placed in one of those cubicles where there's the heavy glass plate separating you uh, between two phones. And as I sit down, there's a really beautiful older woman. She walks in and her face is full of kindness and concern. 
and she's followed by my cousin's business partner, Craig, who's my boss at the studio where I work. And he picks up the phone and introduces me to his mother, Barbara, who is a lawyer, though not the kind that I need. So she picks up the phone and she says, hi, Stephanie, I am so sorry that this has happened, and I'm here to give you legal advice until your father can find an appropriate defense attorney for you. And she tells me that I'm not to speak to anyone until that lawyer is present, and then there's this strange long pause, and she says, I have to tell you that one of the girls from the accident has died. It was the one who was dragged under your car. And my body just turns to ice, and I hear words in the phone, but they're just hitting me in the head like bricks over and over again. And Craig takes the phone from his mother, and he begins to try to comfort me. He tells me that, Stephanie, I know people who have been through this situation before. I know because of that that you can get through this, and you can continue to live your life and find a way to be happy. Craig had been in recovery and AA for years, and I know he means what he says, and that his words are meant to comfort me, but it just fills me with darkness, and I can't imagine a future so bleak. It's time for them to go, and... Craig, when he stands up, places his hand up against the glass. And I've seen that done in movies before, and I've always thought that it's just really cheesy. But in that moment, to me, it meant everything. And as I placed my hand against his on the glass, I'm filled with just this smallest amount of comfort. So I'm then taken to an individual holding cell, which is just disgusting. It looks like there's something like dried blood smeared on the wall, and the mat is dirty, and there's just a toilet and a sink. And the officer who locks me in tells me that there will be a detective appointed to my case Monday at the earliest. And it is Saturday at this point, and it could be noon, or it could be midnight, but it doesn't matter. And I just sink down to that mat, and I'm consumed with grief. And I know that because in some way that I contributed to the death of a human being that my life no longer matters. I just keep replaying the accident over and over in my head if I can somehow just go back in time and find a way to stop my car to save that life. All I can think about is that girl. I'm taken to uh, get my mug shots done and my fingerprints processed. The officers working that station is the first person uh, to treat me like a human being since this happened. He's not exactly kind to me, but he's not scowling and he's not issuing those sharp, brief commands. And as he's going through my information, he talks to me about my case a little bit, and it becomes very clear that the police do not believe there is another vehicle involved. There's no evidence of it, and they only think it's me. I'm being held responsible for this. So I desperately begin to tell him about everything that I remember, everything that happened about that black SUV. And he kind of steps back and looks at me as if to size me up, and he's trying to decide if I'm the kind of person who would lie about something like this. And after a moment, he flips back through my paperwork, and he just says, you should pray, you should talk to God, and talk to your higher power, and keep your spirits up. It doesn't exactly fill me with the comfort that I was hoping for, but I do feel that I've been heard by this officer and that he believes my side of the story. He must have said something to someone because after a long sleepless night in my cell, I wake up, the lights come on, and there's an officer present who tells me that a detective has been assigned to my case and would be in shortly to speak with me. It's Sunday morning now, and I was told originally Monday at the soonest. 
So I'm led to a room for questioning. The detective enters the room and he kind of just looks like my dad and he actually smiles at me. And as he spreads the paperwork out on the table, um, he greets me and says, Stephanie, I've just watched the video footage from the traffic camera at the intersection where this accident occurred and would you please go over everything with me. The news that there is video footage from the accident is amazing, but I don't allow myself to feel any hope as I begin to recount everything that I remember with him. I tell him about that black SUV, how I saw it speed away, and how I tried to stop my car, but there just wasn't any time. And he's nodding in agreement with everything that I say, and he says, yes, we see that black SUV. We can't pull a license plate number off the video footage because of the snow, and the snow is also, you know, because of the poor visibility where you couldn't make out those victims as people. And then he says, you'll be happy to know that everyone from the accident has survived and they're going to be okay. My jaw just drops open, my hands are at my chest, and I only stammer like I was told someone had died. And his eyes are kind of wide with confusion. He says, no, no, I don't know who would have provided you with that information, but it's incorrect. So I walk out of the Justice Center a few hours later, and I'm simultaneously filled with the greatest relief and gratitude and the most intense confusion and still the darkest depression I've ever felt in my life. My cousin pulls up to get me and I rush into his car into this big warm hug and I feel for the first time in days that I might start to regain some semblance of the life that I had begun to build before this all happened. But in the next few days I have to keep reminding myself over and over again that she's alive because this feeling that I had contributed to the death of another person. It didn't just go away. I just kind of blankly stared at walls in between phone calls with lawyers and with family. And I received updates about the girl whose name was April. She was out of the ICU and she was stable and she'd be released soon. I really wanted to reach out to her and to send flowers or a letter, but my lawyers told me that they had learned that her family's intention was to sue me, which came as no shock and I completely understood. I couldn't even begin to imagine the pain that she had been through. And I mean, I had witnessed was so horrific and I wasn't even a person who was injured. So I don't talk to her, but a week goes by, I go back to work at the studio and I look down at my phone and there is a voicemail and I listen to it and I hear a really sweet, timid voice and it's April. And I don't remember exactly what she says because I'm in shock, uh, but I do remember her saying, I just wanna talk to you. I don't even know what you look like, but I just wanna say hi. And then the next day there's a message from her on Facebook as well and I talk to my lawyers and they tell me that I shouldn't respond. Anything that I say can be taken as an admission of guilt and used against me in a lawsuit. But it just feels so mean and so cold not to reach out back to her. I just want to tell her that I'm so glad she's okay. But I listen to my legal counsel and I let the comfort and love of my friends and family surround me. And as days go by, weeks and then months, I begin to feel okay with what's happened but the guilt that I have from not reaching back out to her just keeps me up at night. And I still think of her. When I initially pitched this story, I thought that to come full circle with it, that I should finally break the silence between us, but it's been four years now. 
And with all of the healing that she must have had to go through and all of the pain, all of the suffering, for me to find relief from that guilt, it just isn't enough. So if there's any chance that she ever hears this story, I would just like to say, I'm so glad that you're alive. And I've thought of you almost every day since the accident. And there's nothing that I wish for more in my heart than your happiness. Thank you. I thought I saw the devil this morning Looking in the mirror, drop of rum on my tongue With a warning To help me see myself clearer I never meant to start a fire And never meant to make you bleed I'll be a better man today I'll be good, I'll be good And I'll love the world like I should Yeah, I'll be good, I'll be good For all of the time That I never could This is Risk. This is James Young behind me now and we just heard from stephanie streeter a fan of the show who had never told a story on stage before reached out to us when she heard we were coming to cleveland and we're so thankful she did stephanie is a tattoo artist you can find her at cleveclassictattoo.com that's c-l-e-v classictattoo.com out there in my home state of ohio Now, our last story today comes from our last show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and we're going to be back there this Wednesday. This is the first time we're featuring the brilliant John Fugelsang on the show. Uh, John, you can find him on SiriusXM with his show, Tell Me Everything, and you should definitely follow him on Twitter, at John Fugelsang. Anyway, here he is now at the Risk Live show at the Bell House. It's John Fugelsang with a story we call... Something sketchy. I'll be good, I'll be good. And I'll love the world like I should. Yeah, I'll be good, I'll be good. For all of the times I never could. This piece is about Donald Trump, even though he's not mentioned once in it. But um, if you get frustrated watching the media promote him and not ask him hard questions and wonder why they do that, uh, this kind of answers it. Um, I was out in L.A., living the dream, doing a crappy TV show uh, that paid the bills. And I was trying to do political stand-up in the L.A. comedy clubs, which should give you a rough idea of how well-intentioned but naive I was during this period. Imagine trying to do political material in a town where it's a virtue to not know who the mayor is. I'd be like, aren't you guys upset about the economy, man? Aren't you pissed about AIG? Oh, brah, I don't even listen to hip hop. Yeah. 
So, um... The economy changed, and the company that I worked for got sold. My show was abruptly canceled. My dad was starting hospice treatment back east in Florida, so my wife and I decided to start over, have a big Hollywood yard sale, and move back to a one-room studio apartment here in New York. And then in an 18-month period, my dad died. My aunt who helped raise me died. My wife's grandmother died, and our best friend killed herself. We found out that my mother was dying of a rare degenerative disease. Both of our cats died. Money got tight. Credit cards started getting declined. We got mired in debt. We got desperate. And then we got pregnant. This is the story of how my psychosis made me such a nuisance, it wound up affecting an American presidential election. Um, just as no man can ever understand the innately female subjective experience of pregnancy and childbirth, no woman can ever understand the uniquely male experience that I call male provider anxiety. The baby was coming. I hadn't worked in a year. And I got a call from a certain TV channel, a news channel. I shouldn't say it's now vaguely. I'll say it was a, a cable news network. And... Um, <laughs> And I was invited to start sitting in every morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on Soledad O'Brien's morning show as the recurring panel's token political comic. Uh, now, I, 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 I love Soledad O'Brien. I thought she was great and brilliant. And with the baby's arrival only a couple of weeks away, I knew if I played my cards right, this could lead to something better at the network. They wanted something edgy, but not in your face. Political, without taking sides and a New York flavor without being too urban. Um, <laughs> I began slipping out of bed every morning in the dark at 4 a.m., putting on a suit and tie in the dark of our tiny flat and heading uptown to do three hours of live TV unpaid. And unpaid was the deal. I tried not to think too much about it. 15 hours of live broadcasting on TV every week where every moment was considered an audition for possible future paid work. I could handle that. Comedians were the ones who originated trading content for airtime. And it was kind of refreshing to realize that CNN had the same exact policy as MTV. Um, <laughs> And Soledad O'Brien was fantastic. Sharp, brilliant, clever, tough, and tolerant of my trifling ways. On our first exchange on camera together, she pointed out that she was both uh, Puerto Rican and Irish. So I said, uh, oh, no temper issues in your family. <laughs> she looked directly at me and said, I'm also part black. And... Uh, I was part of this three-person panel that got on set with her for all these hours of the broadcast. The others would be CNN personalities, journalists, congresspeople. Once it was Oprah's boyfriend, Stedman. Um, just <laughs> sit next to me for three hours talking about stuff. And we would, uh, periodically, Soledad would call on the panel to debate a topic. Periodically, I once sat next to a Republican senator who didn't get to speak for a whole hour, but we would talk about, you know, different topics or take part in various human interest chats. We did segments with, you know, cool people like Magic Johnson or Cal Ripken or Rodney King, even Miss Universe. But I soon realized that despite my resume, 
As a political comedian, they almost never let me participate in any political interviews. And this was during the time of the last presidential race. So if some big player in the presidential race showed up, we'd usually have to either clear the set or sit there silently while Soledad did a one-on-one -on -one with said campaign big shot. And it made me nuts. I had done Bill Maher's show over a dozen times. I had debated Jerry Falwell and David Duke. I had a political comedy album that went to number one. I, I, and they still wouldn't let me even ask questions. And I understood. You know, this is a big network. They couldn't have a vulgar vaudevillian talking to heads of state. If I asked a question that offended a guest, or God forbid a viewer, it could hurt the network. But this was the presidential race, and I was stuck on the sidelines, not able to do what I did for a living. I'd go off on the weekends and play 3,000-seat houses talking about stuff I couldn't talk about on TV every day. And I knew if they just gave, gave me one chance to talk to one of the big political figures, that I'd have my moment to shine. <laughs> but every moment is an audition. The baby came in March on Mitt Romney's 65th birthday. <laughs> I took it as a sign. Obviously, this election and I have a date with destiny. <laughs> I may have been reading too much into it. It was also the birthday of adult film actor Ron Jeremy. <laughs> In case any of you are still hung up on astrology, Ron Jeremy and Mitt Romney share a birth... That, that giant penis and Ron Jeremy. Um, <laughs> So a few days after bringing this baby home and realizing that newborns don't much care if you need to be up at 4 a.m., I found myself dazedly, exhaustedly back on the set during Soledad's interview with Governor Romney's communications director, Eric Fernstrom. Now, this was during a period when the mainstream press was all obsessed with the question of whether Mitt Romney was conservative enough. Do you remember this? They kept asking him, are you conservative enough, Governor Romney? And he kept saying, I'm severely conservative. But, <laughs> which to me just implies like Torquemada, Sith, Hitler. Uh, the conventional wisdom was that Mitt Romney flipped like a crack house mattress. You know, the guy... The guy had changed his positions on uh, gay rights, health care, the NRA, tax cuts, embryonic stem cell research. In my act, I was calling him reversible mittens. I mean, the guy was, no disrespect, but he was flipping on every possible topic. He was the human equivalent of a hollowed out inflatable guy at a car dealership. Now, uh, Romney's Republican opponents all kept hammering at the fact that he wasn't conservative enough. And the media, of course, played along. And if I had been allowed, I would have asked a totally different question, which is, hey, hasn't your guy Mitt kind of fallen into the Bob Dole trap of pretending you're more conservative than you really are? I mean, why wasn't the media asking that? You're trying to fake these right-wingers out to get the nomination, but you're not being straight with them. It's not who you really are. They'll respect you more if you can just say, I'm not the most right-wing guy in the race, but I'm gonna win this nomination and you fuckers can get in line or not. They still wouldn't like you, but they'd respect you. So when Soledad O'Brien suddenly and inexplicably caught my eye and off camera gave me the, do you wanna ask Mitt Romney's right-hand guy a question look? All the depression, all the anxiety, all the fatigue blew away. I knew exactly what I wanted to ask. 
I knew it would be a little blunt. I couldn't come right out and just say, hey, isn't your guy way too right wing and haven't y'all completely fucked up? You know, you can't say that. So I decided to dress up the pointedness of my question in bullshit wordy news speak. And in a moment of sleep deprived hubris, I threw caution to the wind and I, I Googled the exact exchange. So I'm gonna read it to you verbatim what was said. Um, <laughs> Good morning, sir. It's, this is me. She gave me the nod, let me jump in, and I said, uh, good morning, sir. It's fair to say that John McCain in 2008 was a considerably more moderate candidate than the one Governor Romney faces now. Isn't there a concern the pressure from Santorum and Gingrich might force the governor to tack so far to the right it would hurt him with more moderate voters in the general election? 400 words to ask a simple question. Right. Mr. Fernstrom replied uh, verbatim, well, I think you hit a reset button for the fall campaign. Everything changes. It's almost like an Etch-a-Sketch. You can kind of shake it up and start all over again. My jaw dropped. He had just admitted it, an Etch-a-Sketch. Mitt Romney's ideology was like the freaking guy from Memento. I leaned in to ask my follow-up question, but Soledad, to her credit, retook control of the segment, and I slumped back in my chair, wondering if anyone had caught what had just happened. At 9 a.m., I got off the air and headed back downtown to the village to meet Charmian and the baby, and as I looked down at my phone to casually check Twitter, which you do when you're trying to wake up or fall asleep, <laughs> it took a numb, slack-jawed moment to realize exactly what it was I was looking at on my phone. The number one trending topic nationwide at 9 a.m. on all of Twitter was Etch-a-Sketch. <laughs> The clip of our exchange had gone viral, and how? Democrats and Republicans alike were sharing it, declaring it proof that Mitt Romney changed his positions like a yoga teacher on tainted meth. By the time I got to the cafe to greet Charmian and the baby for breakfast, they were showing the clip on all the other news channels. In the cafe, another news channel was showing me as we ordered breakfast. I was being called the reporter <laughs> who had provoked the first serious gaffe of the 2012 campaign. By the time I'd finished my breakfast, finished my breakfast, both Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum had been photographed holding up Etch-a-Sketches at rallies that morning. I don't know how they got an Etch-a-Sketch that early in New England in the winter. But they were doing it to mock their party's frontrunner. Uh, my email exploded. Journalists, real ones, were all wanting to talk to me about it. Dave Weigel wrote a piece for Slate that called me the comedian who ruined Mitt Romney's week. I got calls from friends in Europe who had seen the footage on their TVs. That night, that clip aired on the big three network newscasts, plus The Daily Show, plus Colbert. Uh, my suit and tie looked very neat, but I looked like the Crypt Keeper uh, after, a, after a Gitmo sleep deprivation experiment. And I realized I was so tired from having a newborn born less than a week ago that I could conceivably be hallucinating the entire experience. Um, that night, brothers and sisters, Etch-a-Sketch sales went up 
16,000% on Amazon.com. I don't know why you're clapping. I didn't say the Etch-A-Sketch metaphor. I own no stock in Ohio Arts, but I appreciate your zeal. Within a week, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had mentioned Etch-A-Sketch in relation to Governor Romney. All the death, all the loss, all the hustle, all the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for dinner, all the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for breakfast and lunch, all the anxiety, all the lunacy that had pushed me to the point of not giving a fuck. And now, worldwide attention. My question on this show had made the show into a little asterisk in the history of an ugly little presidential campaign. This must be what political capital feels like. The network would have to be pleased with this. On Twitter, they were bringing up TV shows I had hosted in the 90s at in hate from non-millionaires who loved Romney. But I didn't mind the hate. I still get it to this day for the exchange. The network would have to be impressed. They'd have to give me a regular job on the show now. And, and eventually, if not give me my own show, come on, man, they'd have to at least give me a shot at getting my own show. They'd start paying me. It would be a steady gig. I could start playing bigger theaters on the weekends and finally do that political comedic talk show that I've been pitching all this time. Then we could buy a house and in a couple of years I'll have enough money to just write scripts and act all the time. We'd made it. It was the beginning of the end of my mail provider anxiety. I wasn't going to have to sell bone marrow for diaper money. <laughs> the next morning... I rose effortlessly at 4 a.m., dressed five feet away from a sleeping newborn in a dark studio apartment in Greenwich Village, but with a sense of purpose. I made it uptown and hid my excitement as I made my way to the studio floor where I encountered a high-level producer for the show. So, um, very serious. So, uh, we made the news yesterday. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you see the coverage? Uh, we were on every news show in America last night. I know, the producer replied. And we'll never be able to book him on the show again. Over the next few days, I came to realize that despite shaking up the presidential race, some at the network were actually less than pleased. A lowly, unpaid comic who'd somehow been allowed to ask a question, a vulgar vaudevillian, had led to the Romney campaign being alienated from the network. My little kerfuffle might make it harder for the network to book other high-ranking campaign officials. Now, I always say, if you want to commit adultery, do it with the wife of a TV news anchor, because those guys don't enjoy asking follow-up questions. And you see, the reason some TV news anchors sometimes don't ask the tough questions is because on occasion, some of their bosses believe in sacrificing information for access. I had gotten information. I'd caused a huge story, but I had cost them access. I had burned the contact. I had asked a fair question and it generated legitimate controversy. I thought the media's job was to make politicians uncomfortable, but sometimes, brothers and sisters. The media's job is to do something very polite in between the Viagra and Cialis commercials. <laughs> in the days that followed, I realized that my head was now on the chopping block. 
the anxiety, the fear all began coming back. I began wishing there was a way I could take the whole experience and somehow make it disappear by shaking it above. No, no, no. I still needed to get paid for the three months I had already done on this show. When the call came, I was walking down Bleecker Street with a newborn strapped to my chest, and the producer, it was a couple weeks later, sounded almost jubilant. It's nothing but good news. They really like what you're doing, and they think it's time to transition you out of mornings. I've heard rumors they got some really big plans for you over here, and I'm sorry we have to lose you, but I know something really good is going to happen soon. She was so convincing, it took about an hour before I realized I had just been fired. <laughs> Sometimes your own individual lunacy can be so strong you don't notice you're trapped in a bigger lunacy which could be the thing causing your lunacy in the first place. But I also learned that sometimes risk can be the safest choice. Because while risk may not always lead to the outcome you wanted, playing it safe for the sake of stability is the most effective way to hate oneself for years. I was soon offered my own primetime political comedy talk show on another network, and that sounded great. I mean, what could ever go wrong with Al Gore's current TV? <laughs> but that's another much less uplifting tale. The CNN show eventually got canceled, which was too bad. Um, but they did wind up paying me a little for the time I'd worked, so I want to I thank them for that. And a few months after that, uh, Soledad actually came on my own show, and I got to thank her for, for giving me the shot. And, and they did wind up paying me a little bit. And I still go on CNN all the time. Uh, maybe not after this. Um, <laughs> and I went back on the road. And over the next several months, I traveled this country. This country in the throes of another ongoing democratic experiment, a divided populace facing an uncertain presidential election, a country at war with itself yet totally interdependent, this eternally dividing cell, this ever-evolving, ever-devolving work in progress that is America. <laughs> and as I journeyed this land trying to make sense of what my life had become and trying to figure out what it was going to become, I'm very proud to say that in the course of my traversing of this beautiful landscape, I was personally asked to sign over 75 Etch-a-Sketches. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water, we'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths with cinnamon now. These currents pull us across the border. Steady your boats, arms to shoulder, till tides all pull. Our holy grounds making this call Harbor now home Take up your arms, sons and daughters We will arise 
from the bunkers by land, by sea, by the ridge of all. We'll leave our tracks untraceable now. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Decembrist behind me now. And I'm going to read a big list of all the places Risk is appearing live next. On March 23rd, we are right back where you heard that last story recorded at the Bell House in Brooklyn. And on the 24th, we're in Los Angeles at the Nerdist Showroom. Andy Kindler is going to be doing that show. We've wanted to have Andy on for the longest time. March 26th. We are at the Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. That's going to be an amazing show. Vancouver. Vancouver on April 27th. We are in your town. First time ever visiting Vancouver. The theme that night is overwhelmed, and the pitch deadline is March 30th. Then on April 28th, we're in Seattle. Seattle, we're coming back on April 28th. The theme is Enraged. The pitch deadline is March 31st. April 30th, we're in Portland, Oregon. The theme that night is Despair. The pitch deadline is April 2nd. Um, I guess we still are thinking we're coming to Boston in May. (laughs) The theme is Respect. All right, so pitch us, Boston folks because we think we're coming to you in May, and the theme is respect. Now, we have a big show at the Bell House again on May 20th. That show will be a celebration of The State, my old sketch comedy group. We're coming out with a book, an oral history of the group, so there will be members of the state there. Janine Garofalo will be there. Members of the state who can't make it will be there via Skype, Look for tickets at thebellhouseny.com. On May 21st, we are in Minneapolis again. The theme is repugnant. And the pitch deadline is April 23rd. In June, we're hoping to make it to Pittsburgh with the theme mesmerized. And we're definitely going to make it to St. Louis on June 25th with the theme worried. Pitch deadline for that is May 28th, St. Louis. And then on July 8th, we will be in San Francisco again. The theme that night is Resonant. And the pitch deadline, uh, I don't think we have one set up yet. So just pitch us San Francisco for the Resonant theme on July 8th. If you love what we do here at Risk, don't forget you can support us by going to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. 
You can also find our storytelling training. That's one-on-one sessions, online courses, corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. And if you are thinking of pitching us a story, be sure to check out the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's plenty of helpful tips and prompts there for pitching us a story successfully. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Here are the bombs fade away. 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 That is, that is, that is, oh, <laughs> that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Decemberist behind me now.